0: This podcast is brought to you by Fabfilter, makers of the Grammy winning Pro Q3EQ and the recently released Saturn II multi-band distortion and saturation plugin. Learn more at fabfilter.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. What to Bjork Beach House? Slow dive liturgy, chick-chick-chick the Mars Volta, Deer Hunter, Explosions in the Sky, Serpent with Feet, and Ryuichi Sakamoto all have in common. Mastering Engineer Heba Kadri. Born and raised in Egypt and now residing in Brooklyn, New York, Heba has become a cornerstone of the mastering community. Online publisher Jeff Stanfield caught up with Heba from her home to get her thoughts on mastering, working with Bjork, and building a new mastering studio. Enjoy! Well, thanks so much for uh, for sitting down with me and chatting.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure.
0: You know, mastering is still one of these like dark arts and like a mysterious process to the outside world. And I'd like uh, your version and answer to the question, what is mastering? And just assume that I'm like a pleasant old retired cobbler from Saginaw <laughs> who has a few record albums, who at a party asked you, you know, and what do you do for work?
1: Oh, man. Yeah. I always get stumped whenever somebody asks me the the question because I'm like, do I give them the long answer or or the short answer? Because, you know, you get to a point where you're like midway explaining and like you see that glazed look in people's eyes. But um, in very basic like layman terms, uh, a mastering engineer is a finisher. Um, And you are like sort of the objective last person in the process that um, basically like uh, makes sure everything is good to go, it's prepared, it's, it sounds cohesive, and is good to go for production. So uh, I've developed several analogies over the years. My favorite one was ex- was Miho Hattori from Chibomato. We, were, we had a session together one day and she, she gave me the best explanation for what mastering is. And so I stole it from her. So thank you, Miho. Um, she said that a mastering engineer is basically like an art gallerist or an art curator. So in a way, you you know the, the artwork is finished. Um, it's pretty much complete. But you as a curator, you have to find the right space. You have to find the right pieces. You have to tie them in in a journey. Um, you select the framework. You select the lighting. You select the placement. You are basically creating the journey that makes it feel like it's an experience and that i think is the best non-technical way of explaining what a mastering engineer is
0: yeah i love that and uh i love non-musical analogies to music jobs
1: <laughs> yes makes it easier
0: yeah so so i know that you were into audio engineering um when you were in, were in egypt and you were working is this correct in sort of a jingle house but what made you want to move over to the mastering side from, from an engineering role where you're actually making records or you know, engineering sessions and working with talent? Dip over to
1: the dark side. Honestly, because I was, I was an engineer in my mid-20s. I was a midnight-to-dawn engineer at this amazing recording studio in Houston called Sugar Hill Recording Studios. If you guys don't know about it, please look it up amazing history. It's actually the oldest continuously operating studio in the United States. It's been around since like 1948. It was a, but you know, it was, in, it was in Houston and this was mid-2000s. The music scene wasn't that great. And being like a Midnight to Dawn engineer, I, you know, I kind of got the dregs of, um, you know, the Houston music scene. And, and so I was very, I was learning, of course. And so the learning experience was really wonderful, but I, I couldn't really find myself. I loved recording, but I just, I couldn't really find myself in it. I was too intimidated to mix. And so I was like, well, mastering is sort of like this last frontier I know nothing about. So why don't I check that out? And I, I think I just kind of decided, you know, I've sort of, I've tried everything. This If this doesn't work out, then I, you know, I probably don't belong in audio. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I decided like I knew New York was the place to be to to do mastering um I you know again that was just something that I was like you know obviously you could be a mastering engineer anywhere but um I was like well you know if you can make it in New York then you could probably make it anywhere um so yeah I like you know it was so naive honestly I just like I sold my car I packed my bags I quit and then I was like all right I'm gonna I'm gonna start from scratch and see how it goes
0: then what? Well, you you end up in New York. I did read that you attended a mastering panel with Greg Calbi at an early tape op conference.
1: Yeah, that was a turning point for me. Honestly, I it was really early on for me. I just I still didn't really know anything about mastering, and I, I heard him talk at this conference. It was like the first one in New Orleans, which was so fun. Um, and I went there with all the Sugar Hill crew, and yeah, and 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 it was just really wonderful to to listen to him talk about the way his work process and it just felt like there was something about mastering that seemed very soothing like you know any mastering engineer that I saw at the conference or met they seemed so collected and together and like such like a a soothing uh inspiring person I was like man there's something about this uh, field that seems like uh you know, as a young engineer, you're a little bit intimidated. You're a little bit, into, you know, you, you don't speak up as much. You you are like, you know, as a mastering engineer, maybe I don't really have to talk as much as like a recording engineer or mixing engineer. Um, I know these were all like assumptions, of course, that my naive uh, 25-year-old brain. But um, yeah, I just, I think I just decided this was something I need to investigate and see if it
0: works out. But you're, so you you, you pack up your car, you go to New York,
1: yeah, I, I interned I interned at a big studio in the city, and I I couldn't I couldn't really get my foot in as uh, an engineer, but I got hired as a studio manager, and uh, you know, and it was like it was a bit of a slog, and I over the course of time, <clears throat> I would like you know go into the studio and try to you know figure something out. And you know, and then I started to you know, get to know bands and I worked on a band that were friends of mine who we were signed to Thrill Jockey uh, label in Chicago. And um, one thing led to another. I started working with Thrill Jockey more and Bettina, Thrill Jockey, sent me an email one time and she was like, hey, I have this new band I just signed and they have an, their new album. Do you wanna work on it? I was like, yeah, of course. And it turned out to be Future Islands. And that was kind of like a launching pad for me. And so I, at that point, um, after doing it for a little bit longer, I was like, you know, it's, it's, time, it's time to do this on my own. And uh, I broke up and I, and I, I uh, joined, I partnered with uh, Timeless Mastering. And um, I was there for about uh, six years. And um, yeah, and then now I'm building my own studio, which should be ready in springtime.
0: You mentioned that that was a a, a bit of a, a process, as building studios will be. Can you can you tell tell us a little bit about what that spot's gonna be like, and who's uh, building it with you? And
1: a, a word of caution: building a studio in New York is pure and utter pain. Um, it's amazing anybody still builds anything in the city, but you know, I do love the city and I do believe in it. Um, and and so I. Um, you know it was like six months to just find the right space because it's really hard you know I can't afford to buy a space in the city so I have to lease and you know the leases are really short and the landlords just don't want you to build anything like you want to do a concrete pour you want to do what fuck that so um, you know but it, it took me a while until I found a spot in Dumbo and, you know, landlord was pretty chill, but then you start to get into like, you know, you, f- you, f- you know, I'm, I'm working with this amazing designer, Jim Keller of Saunders. Um, He had done a couple rooms. He has, he's never done like a full mastering room. So this felt like, you know, so he was really excited to work with me and, you know, and I was really excited to work with a young designer. And um, so it was just kind of like a really good match. And, um, yeah, we, we got the design sorted, but then, you know, just the construction, you know, if you, if you build anything in New York, it's like, you have to tack on like four extra months, than your anticipated timeline. So, uh, you know, permitting with the DOB is a nightmare. Um, Dumbo is a landmark, uh, the building I'm in is a, is a landmark building. So they're just hyper, uh, sensitive about everything. Um, you know, everything from electrical to just permitting walls, which I, you know, obviously I understand it's for safety, but you know, for a project like mine, which is like small potatoes in comparison to like the multimillion dollar developments that happen in the city, it's like, you know, my sheets like sit on someone's desk for weeks because it's like, it's like who cares, you know? So it took a long time to get that sorted, but we are are very close to the finish line and um, it's a really cool room. It's really nice and big. It's got, like, windows, which was pretty crucial for me. That was another thing was, you know, looking at spaces, especially if, like, let's say you want to be in a room, you know, if you want to rent a room out of, like, an already existing, like, recording facility, there's, you know, which are around. I mean, that's, like, the easiest thing you could do, right, is you find a room in someone's multi-room facility and you just, you know, which is already, the acoustic stuff is already done. Maybe they already have monitors, like, you know they've done half the work for you you just have to plonk your shit down and get going so that's easier but then you there the downsides are you probably don't have a window you uh, also uh are you know beholden to them you are um you know not not so much in control of everything and also the, the price is always so much more expensive like which makes sense because this is again prime real estate so at this point in my career, it just felt like the right time. And, and you know, I think every engineer has to go through this whole uh, sort of uh, journey where you, you you start working for someone, perhaps, and then you maybe partner with someone. And then you eventually find yourself at a point where you're like, all right, I know exactly what I want. I don't want to have to squabble with anyone. I don't want to have to fight my way through. I, I want it to be exactly the way I want, the way I want to run my business. So, um, Many of the engineers I've spoken to that are independent have already kind of gone through this cycle. So,
0: yeah, and where are you working in the meantime?
1: So I'm. A, I have a. I'm sharing. Um, uh, Josh Benatti. Uh, he's a mastering engineer here in Brooklyn. He also happens to be my husband. Um, and so I'm. I'm working um, out of his space um, during the night. So uh, it's kind. Of, it's a little bit intense because. Um, I was a timeless and I kind of had like a really nasty split. Uh, I I had to leave very unexpectedly. Well, well before the time I wanted to leave to basically transition into my new space, you know, more smoothly. So um, Josh very kindly let me use his room for the for the few months in between until uh, my space is ready. And I'm kind of spoiled because Josh has a northward acoustics room, which, you know, is designed by... You know, the the top designer in the world, Thomas Jean jean who, uh, you know, it's just as perfectly tuned a room as you could possibly imagine. So um, I can't get too used to it.
0: <laughs> I wanted to go back and just talk to you about how you approach each record. And then a follow-up question to that is, as more and more people are working on their own in their own spaces, a lot of them home studios, how have you seen what you're being delivered? How has that changed as well?
1: Um... So the first question, how do I approach each record? I, it, it just depends on, on the project, right? So you, um, the most thing I try to encourage is dialogue you you have to communicate with your mastering engineer like people are, just want to dump their files on you and just be like yeah do your own thing man just whatever and it's like no that's not how it works like you know the more information you can give me the better you you the more information you arm me, arm me with then i can do a better job so anything about you know what your intention for the mixes was what you envision mastering to be what are your expectations, you know, managing those expectations? Is that stuff achievable? Could there be things tweaked in the mixes? You know, that first step right before mastering, that's kind of like where a lot of like stuff gets ironed out. And, you know, sometimes like I might have to kick back mixes and be like, you know what, guys, like I think, you know, it's like this needs a little bit more work or this is giving me a bit of trouble, like maybe fix this thing. So, yeah, the approach varies, and, you know, ultimately, if the, um, you know, the producer, the artist, or whoever's making all the sonic decisions gives me all that information, if they have any ideas about references, stuff that they like, even if it's, like, you know, not even stuff in the same genre, like, it just gives me an idea of, of what their ears are, are calibrated to, and then, um, yeah, and then I, I like to try a few tracks, first because I work on an analog console so my gut instinct about a record could be completely off with what they had in mind so like let's say someone sent me a bunch of mixes and they're like yeah do your own thing and I'm like okay I'll do my own thing and then I master the whole thing and then I send it back and they're like uh this is not loud enough uh this is not as compressed enough so it's like well you said make it dynamic right and so a lot of times people say like make it dynamic," but loud and you're like okay you know that's a bit of a contradiction there so you you kind of have to like wade through a lot of what people think they want what the mixes can offer you and then obviously the goal is to give the uh the client like something they're over the moon about and they're really happy with and, and that it exceeds their expectation um, and i always tell people like don't use mastering to fix things use mastering to to be the sweetener you know to be the cherry on top a lot of times that doesn't happen because with a lot of home recording stuff people are not monitoring properly um people lean on mastering a lot to like fix a lot of problems which is fine of course it just takes more time you know you might have to ask for stems you might have to ask for mixes that uh cater to whatever they're looking for if the mixers are, are not offering uh that so um yeah, there's, it's a bit of a minefield and, you know, you have to kind of gauge the client too. Like you, you know, the client might be very much like open and wanting to be creative and like do your own thing. And that's totally cool. And sometimes the client, you know, when you work with some of the b- bigger mixers, they're like, look, I've worked my ass off on these mixes and I'm really happy with them. Just make it louder. And it's like, that's cool too. Like you want a transparent um touch um and even if you're not necessarily like just turning up a knob which is what they think you're doing you're still doing a lot you want them to feel like you didn't do that much that does actually still take a lot of
0: work so um right and, and are you i mean you mentioned that you're kicking back mixes to people are you getting involved much earlier in the process and in, in some cases
1: sometimes Yeah, sometimes, especially when it's, like, a couple producers that, you know, I'm, like, their go-to person, and, you know, maybe they're mixing out of town, not in the room, and they're not really secure about where they're at, and they they just want, like, a a second ear on the stuff, and so they'll send me the tracks and be like, if you have any notes, please let me know, because I don't trust the room that I'm in right now, and I trust yours, so, uh, yeah, and then I'll give feedback, and, you know, it'll be an ongoing process, Um, but and sometimes not not at all like sometimes you'll get stuff and it's like you know a very quick turnaround
0: there's no better feedback than you're going to get from your mastering engineer because the goal is always to have the mastering engineer do as little as possible to your mix
1: (laughs) absolutely no I'm and it it is true that like as for example like at abbey road back in the day any anybody that wanted to engineer started out as a mastering engineer. They started all the way backwards and then moved to the front. And it's true, like when you really understand what mastering does, how it can change your mixes, uh, maybe even master stuff yourself, like you really become a better mixer. And I only really realized that and had a honestly like a true, true appreciation for mastering when I very unexpectedly got hired to mix a Bjork record. Uh, well, two this, years is, ago.
0: this is my next question, and, and it has to do with with um, stem mixing in some regard. But I, when we were at AES, you told me a fantastic story about meeting Bjork, and I was wondering if you could retell it for our listeners. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, so I I got connected to Bjork through uh, Robin Carolan, who runs Triangle Records. And Triangle Records is this really amazing indie. Sort of industrial noise um, label. Um, he's from the UK, but he was based out of New York for a while. Uh, he's back in the UK now. But um, so she really liked a lot of the the sound of the records that came out of his label, which I did pretty much ninety five percent of. Um, you know things like you know Vessel and um, a- 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 Evian Christ and those those kind of art- artists. So you know that stuff is really harsh, very pounding industrial noise stuff um uh so he she was interested in, in 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 meeting me and you know she had sent me an email and she like right off the bat was like do you mix I was like no I don't <laughs> and she's like can you work with stems and I was like yeah no I do I definitely can work with stems but I do not mix um and so that was cool she was like yeah that's fine um and so I I remember going to her house in Brooklyn and meeting with her. And so she started playing me the tracks and like letting me know what she had in mind. Um, of course, I was like peeing in my pants, not uttering a word. I'm in the presence of like true greatness, like one of my idols. And she was so humble and so cool. Um, and, uh, you know, and she was like, all right, cool. I'm going to start sending you some tracks and we'll go from there. So she did start sending me stems for some tracks. And honestly, I very naively thought like, oh, so she's still in production phase and she just wants someone based here in New York where she's at at that moment to just tie things in for her. And so that's what I thought I would come in. And then eventually a proper mixer would mix this album. And so we started doing that and, uh, you know, months go by and I go to Iceland, and I was her with her in Arca, and Arca, and then I remember at some point, you know, and of course the stems, the stems started to break down into multi-tracks. And then we were doing a lot of like production choices and like straight up mixing, uh, you know, process. I still didn't, I still really truly thought someone was gonna mix this. And so we were at a party she has all these, like, fun brunches um, and invites people over. And, uh, and she was introducing me to someone, and, and she was like, this is Heba. She's mixing my album. I was <laughs> like, wait, what am I doing? <laughs> that was like, holy shit, man. I mean, that was like, what the? F-? Okay. I, you know, honestly, I was like, I'm going to trust her 100%. If I suck, she's just going to tell me I suck, and she'll fire me. And um, she didn't do that. And, you know, it ended up being such a wonderful process. I mean, it was, a, you know, a lot of hard work, you know. Um, it was a whole year. Uh, but, you know, she brought in another mixer, Marta Saloni, who's a fantastic mixer. She's Italian but lives in London. And uh, we started, you know, she mixed half the album and I mixed the other half. And we joined forces on a couple songs. And, um, and then, you know, it was, it was really amazing. I, I mean, I just, I really kind of went you know, I just trusted what she wanted to do. And, uh, it, you know, I actually, I met up with her uh, a couple of weeks ago and, you know, we were sitting with a bunch of people and, you know, I was telling them I'm mixing this new project. And, and I was like, yeah, so you can blame Bjork for making me a mixing engineer when I really am not, you know, I, I'm, I still, I still don't really think of myself as a mixing engineer. And I think that is a product of, You know, engineers being told that you have to, like, stick to your own lane. You know, uh, I don't know why that is. Like, I think mixing engineers can dip into mastering, but not the other way around. That's a bit more of a no-no, and I think that's kind of bullshit. But maybe that's changing. And, you know, and and with my experience, I was like, wow, well, maybe I can mix a record.
0: Yeah, no, it's an amazing story. And I always find it so encouraging that people like Bjork are... You know, you mentioned the label that the you know, like this hardcore industrial machine noise label that she knew about was knew the records, um, and and you know she continues to work with people that are are doing interesting things and new things and and people like ARCA, you know, like those early ARCA records are some of the weirdest music ever made. Like, what is it? The stretch records. I mean, those, those records like blew my mind when I heard them and I, and I heard about him, you know, because of her, she's continuing to, you know, push her work into new realms by working with people in interesting ways. And the fact that like she was comfortable asking you or or kind of forcing your hand to mix her record when you weren't necessarily comfortable with that but the that puts you in a position where you were really paying attention.
1: Oh yeah, I mean I I mean I honestly I knew this was a chance of a lifetime and like I said like if I blew it then I don't I have no regrets. I mean it's still amazing, you know, something I could You know, for the ages that I got to work with such an, I mean, Bjork is a a force of nature. And the reason why Bjork has always been so ahead of everyone and such an amazing creative artist. And so, and just like her ideas are just so far advanced um, is because she's a collaborator. She knows how to collaborate. She knows that, you know, you have to find the best in people to get the best product, to get, to make the best art, and she, she, you know, and it's really amazing to me, because, you know, I, I I was with her throughout this whole experience, so I got to see, like, her team, and how she works, and, and, you know, it's kind of like, she has a, a, a really small team around her, and, and these are people that she's worked with for decades, and, and it's like, wow, a, an artist at that level, who's always been independent since like the age of 19, you know, she's never been on a major label. And, uh, you know, she just she just knows that you you give back to the people around you. You treat them really well. You collaborate. You don't you know, she has this really cool way of telling you what she wants, but not dictating it to you. Um, and she's very good at that. So um, she's a true collaborator.
0: One of the things you just you just talked about was Bjork's brunches and Bjork's sort of collaboration, and um, it's a nice segue into one of the things that you and I talked about in your pre interview, which was the need for community and um, and I know you had some things to talk about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, I I think it's really interesting how generationally like you talk to some of the older engineers and they they came up in a in a in an era like you know cutting or mastering engineers like in the 60s and the 70s and even techs like everybody was so guarded about their um their work and what they used and you know because obviously audio was the world of audio and and recorded music was still you know, developing and, and cutting techniques were changing uh, and people were, st- were trying to kind of achieve, like, superior quality. And so, you know, everybody really guarded the way they worked. And so, you, it was really hard to get information. It was really, you know, everybody kind of worked in a very isolating fashion. Um, and, you know, sometimes you work with these techs and, and, you know, they they don't really even try to pass on the knowledge to, like, younger someone uh, an, an apprentice or a younger person to like take the torch and and continue to repair whatever uh, you know esoteric thing that they' that they repair. Um, which really sucks because you know you don't you don't find really good techs anymore. Uh, I mean they, they don't teach sort of analog electronics in electrical school, electrical audio or in, 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 e- in electrical engineering that stuff is so like old school, you know. So, um, yeah, and, and, like, kind of coming up to now to this era where, you know, in the past, even though people were very guarded, like, there was still, like, there was still a studio around every corner, so people would still meet up, you know, for lunches or, or at events. And, you know, back in the day, AES used to be, like, a huge event, like, m- you know, huge budgets, so people still had the ability to, like, you know, mingle and and... and you know, kind of be part of a scene that was very well funded, there was money to be made, people were doing well. You know, fast forward to today where, you know, the music industry is at, at a really weird juncture where, you know, artists are not getting paid. Nobody's making money. Nobody's making money literally off of selling records. I mean, it is beyond disheartening that people are making records. They're they're making pennies off of streaming. And the only way they make money is, is by touring relentlessly um, and, and or, you know, maybe selling, selling physical, like, vinyl. Um, but as far as actually making money, they're not. And so, you know, you see a lot of these artists become really tired like you know it's exhausting to tour relentlessly and then maybe at some point they they're like fuck this i quit you know even though they're hugely talented or or maybe they'll they hold down three jobs or they you know dip into some aspect of audio or production to, to still utilize their skills like doing post stuff but you know no longer doing music and you know that affects our community i mean it's a trickle down effect where if artists are not making money if you're essentially wiping out the middle class of musicians and you know and I'm, do- I'm not talking about like top 40 stuff i'm talking about independent artists who maybe 10 15 years ago they could make a record they could sell thousands of units and they could still eventually save up and buy a house you know somewhere maybe in a suburb maybe they'd have health insurance and you know continue to do their thing like because sometimes you get into these arguments with people about streaming and then they're like I don't understand. Like, how much more money do you want? You know, and it's like, dude, it's not. It's not about how much more money do I want. It's about like, can I make minimum wage off of this new format? And you can't. And I and I read that like you have to, you have to stream a, tra- a track m- one million times to make minimum wage. Who? What kind of independent artist can 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 compete with that? So it's it's a it's a it's an industry that is that is now leaning towards, you know, the people that make money are the top 40s, like the top 40 artists. The people that don't are the indies, like that that whole middle class are barely making money and scraping by. And, you know, it's like, is the reason why, uh, you know, there are no mastering studios in, in Manhattan anymore. It's the reason why, you know, people have leaned onto home recording because, you know, it's like you can't afford... To go to a recording studios and spend like five hundred dollars a day or whatever, it's much easier. And of course, because the technology has advanced, and that that has a lot of its pros. and I'm and I'm you know I'm all for that, of course. But you know, I think you you wouldn't have had the kind of artists like Arca, uh, if, you know, if if it was the era of like making albums in you know proper studios. Like artists like that need like they just all they need is a laptop and a MIDI controller, and they will make amazing shit so it goes both ways like it's you know home recording and you know DAWs getting better plugins getting better have democratized the the entry into uh the world of audio for everyone so anybody can afford to get a decent laptop uh Logic or uh, Ableton and like literally make an album you know and put it up on Bandcamp or put it up on Spotify and you know and start playing shows so that's that's really great it's it's opened up the you know it's it's reduced the gatekeepers to whoever can make music but at the same time it's like then you start losing your experts you start losing the people that are specialized in this art like you know mixers mastering engineers like repair techs um you know all that stuff is starts to diminish because it's like you know People are, 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 they just don't have any budgets anymore. So, and you as a business, you as an engineer, like you have to make this decision. Like I need to pay, I need to keep the lights on. I need to be able to tech my gear, but I still want to be affordable. Like, how do you how do you reconcile with that? It's like, it's my eternal struggle. Like, you know, it's because everybody's like, no, you got to raise your rates. You got to be, you know, you know, you change the rates up and, and you know, go, go for the maximum. And it's like, yeah, but then I'm alienating a whole bunch of people, and I don't want that. That's not the. That's not how you foster a community. Um, you 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 know. It's it's it it's it's something I think about a lot, and it and it really really bums me out. It's truly mind blowing how devalued the the expertise of an engineer has become, and like a real proper engineer um, who's who has experience and and uh, you know and it's it's. You know, you think about it like you becoming, you making that decision to becoming an audio engineer. It's actually like a really crappy business decision because you look at it and you're like, okay, so I'm gonna spend the first ten years of my career either working for people who don't pay me um, or you know, kind of don't really treat me that well, and then uh, you know, then I have to buy all this like extremely expensive gear, like mastering gear is very expensive, building a studio especially a mastering studio is far more expensive than a recording studio. um, If you want to do it right, of course. And so you're like, okay, so I have to invest more and more and more. And like, you're not making that return. And it's like you, it's it's just like a terrible business decision. It only pays off many, many, many years. Like you have to hang in there for so long until you can get to a point where you're like, this is my rate, and I'm not going down, you know, like, you you can either work with me or not, and be confident, because in the past, I'd be far more insecure about it, and be like, oh, okay, you want to do it for 50 bucks, sure, no problem, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, it is, there is no, um, you know, you think about any other field, any other technical field, where, you know, let's say you want to be a doctor, like it's similarly, like you are not you are in it for a very long time. Of course, it's it's much. You know, I'm not comparing audio engineering to being a doctor, which is a, a whole different thing. Of course, I'm just I'm just talking about like the the structure of making it through. Like you know, you 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 know, after you come out of medicine school, then you you know you you intern at hospitals, but you still get paid for your time. You know, they they understand that you have to they have to invest in you. You have securities around you. You can. You can still be a, sort of like a, a not quite at, at the point where you're specializing, but you can still have a family. You can have kids. You and then eventually you can you can start your own practice and you know and secure a loan and then start your own business or, or start your own clinic. But it's it's you know and and with anything else like there's you know you've you've got uh, uh, some like security around you and not the case with audio. We have no security not from not neither not health insurance not uh retirement like this is purely uh almost entirely freelance at this point so yeah it's like it, it, it makes me think like if any you know i don't want to depress the listeners obviously if you're a young engineer the 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 uh the beauty and the reward of, of actually becoming your own engineer is wonderful, um, and I will never replace that. I mean, that, I'm doing exactly what I want to do with my life, but this is a ro- really long struggle. And, you know, of course, it's, it's still difficult because, you know, building a studio in, in Brooklyn is not hard, but, oh, sorry, is hard, but um, it's definitely worth it in the end. I hope. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it sounds like you're doing something about commute with community building with your a new thing that you're doing called the Sapphire Group.
1: Right, right. This is a really good segue. So, uh, the Sapphire Group, for those who don't know, uh, back in the day, in the 1940s, early 1940s, um, a bunch of uh, mastering and cutting engineers, um, they started in New York, and they it was it was like a bunch of like, like I think it was like maybe a hundred guys by the late 40s um they would get together the third wednesday of every month and they'd go to like some i think a steakhouse in in midtown and just like you know you know drink a lot of martinis and hang out and the whole point was just socializing it was like an an effort to get these dudes out of the studio and connecting and of course via networking you do sort of get jobs done or you learn about new techniques and you know through it then that that thing kind of started to become really successful it they started a whole charter in Hollywood and that was like around 50 guys and then they had like you know uh people like a treasurer and a person responsible for uh you know cutting techniques and uh, you know it, it just was a bit more um on the technical end, and they became very—it became really important in the in the standardization of uh, cutting frequencies—and and really kind of helped make, you know, unify uh, a group of mastering engineers to talk as one voice. And so myself, um, Adam Gonzales, um, Amy Dragon, Josh Bonatti, and Maggie Luther were all mastering engineers, and all those guys are cutting engineers. Um, we are putting together, we are sort of reviving the Sapphire Group, and we are doing a conference in Portland, Oregon, in, on August between August 20th and to the 21st. To uh, It'll be the first independent mastering conference in the United States. Um, and the reason why we did that is because about two years ago, um, AS uh, in the UK, they did the first mastering conference over there, and it was really small, but it was so wonderful. It was really so wonderful to... Get together with a bunch of mastering engineers you really hardly ever see, and talk about just specifically mastering because most of the time when you go to a like you know the general AES conferences like mastering takes up like the the tiniest sliver of the program, so you know being able to really kind of have a concentrated mastering conference and bring all these people together um, is really wonderful. So I'm very excited about that.
0: Well, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Absolutely thanks for listening find us online at tapeop.com facebook twitter and instagram until next time